Welcome to Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond podcast. I'm your host. My name is Franz. Well, what have I been up to the last month? Well, the big thing is I've been building my new garage, my 40-foot by 65-foot, well, I guess almost more like a barn up at the ranch. My big problem with living up at the ranch, which has become our main home now, it's about 75, or about 7,300 feet in elevation, is I don't have a workshop. And I'm, I will never be happy without a workshop to putter around in. So I decided to build the ultimate workshop, and I'll also store some vehicles in there in the winter. But I needed a space to move all my tools from the city workshop up there. And in my city workshop, I've got so many tools now that I have to move tools to be able to work on any project, and it's uh, really getting crowded. And I want more tools. The guy can't have too many tools. And I always say, if a guy doesn't know how to use tools, he's really not a guy. Come on, you got to know how to use tools. Anyway, so this this month, this past month, we broke ground. It, it literally took me about a year to get the permit to build this garage because it was bigger than they wanted to allow me to build up there. It's about 2,600 square feet. And it looks sort of like a barn. It's got two side, oh, how would you describe it? Basically two lean-tos, then a big overhead one. It looks like a barn, basically, with two side... side uh, garages or entrances on the side so i have three garage or four garage doors on the front one in the back and this month we uh, (laughs) i got my friend heber steed up there who i've worked with for years and years and years and even though utah has gone absolutely wacko as far as construction goes if i didn't have a personal relationship with these people ahead of time there's no way i could have gotten done or got done what I did get done this year. So I asked Heber if he could bring his excavator up and help me with it. He said, I'm busy, Franz, but I'll find a way to get you in there. And then uh, my concrete guy, because of my previous relations with him, uh, said, yeah, I'll, I'll squeeze you in. So the goal this year before the snow falls, and the snow has already fallen several times up there, but it's that time of year where it'll snow one day and it'll melt off the next day is to dig out the footing, put in the footings and the foundation, and then leave it till next spring. And then next spring, I will put on the the slab, the flat work. And then hopefully, if I can get it ordered, uh, bring in the steel. Right now, I haven't ordered the steel yet. I've been hoping that prices of steel come down, and I've been wrong. Prices of steel have just continued to go up. So it may end up costing me a lot more than I had hoped. Uh, We'll see. We'll see. So we got that done, and this week, this past week, and I'm recording this on uh, November 4th, on Monday this week, which is a few days ago, we poured the uh, foundation last week, or the week before last. No, it was last week. We poured the footings, and we poured the foundation. They stripped it off day before yesterday. The forms, they stripped the forms off day before yesterday. And now the next project uh, before we put it to bed for the winter is to backfill around the foundation, uh, get my water out there and my electrical conduit out there, along with a small electrical conduit that I could put uh, 
low voltage wire through. So I'll be putting one two inch conduit from the house out to the garage, and it's about 150 feet away, and also a, a water line. So I will have at least a hydrant out by the side of the building. That's projected for next week. So next week I'll be up there helping Heber dig that up and put that in. So today, before I came down to the office, I went out and checked my garden. Uh, it's it's frozen. It's frosted a couple times this year, but I thought, well, let's go see what is there. This is the garden behind my house in Salt Lake City, and it's a really small garden and a terrible location for a garden. But nonetheless, we're able to grow some beans and some squash and some peppers. And before I went sailing this summer, I decided to try to grow some mushrooms, some blue oyster mushrooms. And so I went through the whole the whole process of actually inoculating a petri dish uh, with mycelium taking that mycelium and then inoculating some grain spawn and then letting that uh, mature and then after that I took grow bags with with a little bit of the grain spawn in and let that inoculate and actually grew a couple batches or really only one batch of blue oyster mushrooms before I left now, I knew I wasn't going to be able to keep this spawn alive while I was sailing this summer, so I, I made a bunch of spawn bags of spawn grain, which is inoculated with a mycelium, and took it out and uh, planted various spots in my backyard, my garden, with straw and this mycelium, just hoping that something might come up. And I've actually had two harvests of uh, blue oyster mushrooms and a bunch I picked up this morning. I may put a picture on the website of what I harvested this morning. Anyway, that's about what I've been up to. And today I've got my friend Neil Fletcher joining me with this podcast, talking about his time with me this summer. But before we get to that, let me thank my sponsor, Sailrite. For over 50 years, Sailrite has been your authority in all things marine DIY. Do it yourself. What started as a mail-order correspondence course on sailmaking has grown into one of the largest online and catalog retailers for the marine industry. Sailrite stocks everything you need to sew for your boat. They are the only company that makes one design and custom sail kits. As a passionate group of DIYers, Sailrite's dedication to self-reliance at sea is proven in their products and services. Sailrite sells fabric, foam, supplies, and more including the legendary portable and powerful UltraFeed sewing machine. So you can be self-reliant and save money by sewing your own projects, from biminis to dodgers, sacrificial sail covers and sail bags, to interior and exterior seating and cushions. Sailrite brings you the best brands in the industry for unmatched product quality and professional-looking DIY results. With over 50 years of bringing you quality products, unparalleled service, and support, and free how-to videos, Sailrite is a name you can trust. I've got with me today my good friend, Neil Fletcher. Neil and a friend of his joined me in Sicily, in Cephalu, Sicily, and sailed on to uh, Mahone, Menorca, the largest leg of the trip this summer. And I wanted to get Neil on and just have a discussion with him about uh, our, our adventures for that period of time. Hi. Let's just start talking about uh, our trip this summer. Will you join me in Cephalu? When I was in Cephalu, I was actually anchored in the bay because uh, 
Cephalu is, is a delightful port on the northern coast of Turkey. It's about mm, a couple hours away by train from Palermo. And you join me there, and from there we sailed on up to a little island north of that. But you actually had a pretty interesting evening the night before you joined me, as I recall. So why don't you talk about that? Yes, well, I had flown into Sicily. I'd arrived there on the Wednesday morning, and I was due to hook up with you on the Friday morning. And I wanted to spend a couple of days um, just acclimating myself, getting used to the time change. And I wanted to take a quick look around Sicily, what, what little I could anyway. And that just made sense. I'd never been there before. So I stopped off in Palermo, got there and stayed in an Airbnb for a couple of days. And that was really just um, just delightful. I mean, you know, Sicily, Palermo specifically, is a sort of a, a very historic town with a fantastic sort of cross-cultural pollination from all the invaders who's taken over there. So I sort of had a good look around the old town and I took advantage of one of the local street tours, which I very often do when I'm in foreign parts, usually right when I arrive, because it helps me orient myself about where to go, what to eat and getting a feel for the local, you know, the local culture. So I'd done that, I think, the night before or two nights before I joined you. I, I went through this company called Streety Tours, who I found online, cost me 50 euros for a three hour tour. We sampled all sorts of local Sardinian and, uh, beg your pardon, specifically Sicilian cuisine and drank um, various local wines and beers. And it was really interesting. And one thing that I found fascinating was that they've got a, a temple there that was founded by the Knights Templar as an outpost before they started one of their many crusades to regain the Holy Land. So. Now, having watched Indiana Jones and a few other such movies a few times, it was very interesting to see the headquarters of the Knights Templar. So that was cool. I mean, it's very boisterous. The, the thing I wasn't crazy about was the heat. And that, of course, was something that dogged us both during the course of the trip. I mean, it was over 100 degrees every day. Um, not a lot of places have air conditioning. The Airbnb I did, my room had air conditioning. But, um, you know, once the, the sun came up, it was absolutely brutal to be out there. So I sort of limited my excursions to wait until sort of 5 or 6 p.m. just because it was just unpleasant the rest of the time. Yeah, you uh, didn't you go on to a yacht later on that evening? Yeah, that's right. I guess that was what you were referring to. Yeah, that... that <laughs> I guess there were probably 10 or 12 people on there. And one of them was a Dutch woman uh, who by the name of Jutta, I think it was her name, Jutta. And she had a big, beautiful uh, 50-something Bavaria. And after we'd all been uh, hanging out and getting close to the end of the tour, we were right by the docks. And she invited everyone in the group to come onto the, her boat. So that was really a nice uh, uh, bonus, shall we say. And I think I was the only fellow sailor there in the group so i chatted with her quite a long time about the boat the boat she i think she takes it typically for three or four months with her husband cruising in the med so the boat was very well equipped uh, quite luxurious quite large which was nice um considering i was just about to enter the confined spaces of the 28 foot bristol channel cutter um but it was fun. Yeah, we had a nice evening. I think uh, we started drifting off the rest of us around close to 2 a.m. So it was really, you know, and the, 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 the tour finished, I think, at 11. 
So it's really a nice sort of postscript to the to the evening. So, um, so did I'm you, sorry. How, no, how did you get from the airport into Palermo? Because I I dropped my family off. Everybody from my previous group was basically my family, my two daughters, my future son-in-law, and my wife. So you think it was crowded with you and me and your friend on board? Well, it was I really crowded. So. Yeah, I had just arranged with the Airbnb that I booked to have their guy pick me up at the airport. And so when I walked through custody in my hand, he was there with a with a piece of paper with my name on it. So I think it cost me 30 euros. It was, I don't know, a 25-minute trip, something like that. But I would never have found that place without him. I mean, downtown Palermo is really a sort of a, a warren of a rabbit's warren of one-way streets and um, pedestrian zones. And I would have been very hard pushed to find it on my own, I think. Um, you know, plus it was, as I said, it was 100 degrees. I was carrying a bag. I just got off from a long plane trip. So it was, you know, it's the least I could do to splurge on a taxi. Um, and I did the same thing when I came to you in Chefalu too. There, could, there was a train I could have taken. But uh, I just figured I'd just splurge for the taxi. Um, it was just less aggravation for me. Okay, okay. So you joined me in uh, in in Cephalu, and mm-hmm. I think we spent one night there. And then the next day, you went in. You went into Cephalu and did some grocery shopping on your own because you didn't like all the uh, grocery shopping I'd done ahead of time. You have particular expensive taste in food, and I'm a uh, I'm a little different. And then we headed out. <laughs> <laughs> and then we headed out uh, later that night. I guess we left in the middle of the night, pretty much, to get to Ustica, or U-S-T-I-C-A. How would you pronounce that? Uh, Ustica. Yeah, okay. I mean, if you have any Italian listeners, they're more than welcome to call me in and correct me, since I'm usually the one correcting you. Um Turnabout is fair play, uh, as some wise man said. Yeah, we did. We we left we left uh, Cefalu, um late. It was either sort of eleven o'clock at night or it was one o'clock in the morning. I don't really remember. Um, but it was um, it was a pretty uneventful passage, as far as I remember. Um, and I guess we got into Ustica what uh, the next afternoon, sort of four o'clock or something like that. Actually, I think we got in there that morning, and that was the goal, was to get in there uh, early enough that we could get a spot, because there's only a, a room for a few people at the dock. Let me measure how far that was. But it was a, a fairly long hop. I'm on Google Earth, as usual. Let me do a quick measurement of uh, nautical miles from Cephalu to Ustica. Yeah, 56 nautical miles, so on my boat, basically about 10 hours. And so okay. we would have arrived in the morning. And uh, when we arrived, um, we got lucky because the the dock was full, as I expected it to be. It's only got room for about five or six, maybe seven boats maximum in that tiny little dock. And there was a lot of people working their way towards um, uh Sardinia. Yeah, that's what that was. I was was trying to think, okay, where are we going? We're going to Sardinia. So we were headed to Sardinia. And uh, we pulled in there. And 
Do you recall the mooring procedure that we had to go through? Yeah, I mean, there was one space, as far as I recall, that had just opened up from someone leaving. Um, and it was just um, the usual med mooring thing where you uh, drop the anchor off the front and then just reverse in. Um, and I think there were a couple of people, who local, you know, harbour masters and his helper who came to help us with the lines. But we were pretty sm- snug in there. We had a cruising boat to our left and a cruising boat to our right. Cruising boat to our left, I believe, was manned by a couple of Brits in their 60s, nice people. I forget what kind of a boat it was off the top of my head, but, uh, you know, it was it was nice to catch up with them. Um, and we were lucky because that was a small little harbour. And I think after we got in, in the half an hour that followed, probably three or four other boats showed up and uh, had to turn around and, and go find it, find something elsewhere. Um so yeah, we uh, it was good in retrospect that we that we left when we did. Otherwise, we would have been disappointed. Yeah, other people came in later that day, and it was very calm. Um, so I think a few of them just anchored off the off the uh, off the seawall. There, we were on the lee of the shore, or the lee of the island. So the wind was blowing away from the marina. And so I think some people just anchored outside there. But it would have still been fairly rolly if we'd had to anchor out there. Our next stop after that was going to be one of the longest of the year. And that was about 187, 88 nautical miles. But we didn't do that immediately. I looked at the weather forecast, and the weather forecast was winds were not going to be in our favor uh, the next day. So we actually spent, what, I think two or three nights in this marina, didn't we? Um, yeah, I, I, I looked it up and we spent, we arrived on Saturday morning and we spent Saturday and Sunday night there. And then we left on Monday for the passage to Sardinia. And of course, the problem was, as you said, it was so calm and it was in the, you know, it was a beautifully sheltered harbour, which is great when the weather's not bad. But when it's 100 degrees, you know, you're dying for a breath of wind and there's nothing. So by sort of 10 a.m., it was pretty brutal, um, you know, the first day. And I remember we spent most of the afternoon just bobbing around, uh, treading water in the harbor, just trying to get our body temperature down, um, you know, until the sun went down and it became a little more pleasant. Um, and it was, you know, was was nice enough in the evening going up, walking up the hill to the little central plaza and the restaurants there. But, of course, the next day, Sunday, on your recommendation, we rented some um, some scooters. I think I ended up with a, a quad bike. And we went up, ended up going around the island two or three times just because we wanted the wind on our faces. It was the um, it was the cheapest sort of way. Unless we wanted to stick around in a restaurant all day and, and, and rack up a big bill. So that actually was very interesting, I found, because the, the island, it's, you know, it's not super well developed. But what I found interesting was how these little Lido's had popped up, courtesy of some local entrepreneurs who had poured a bit of concrete, uh, added a few tables and chairs and parasols and charged an entry fee. So that I found that kind of interesting. And, of course, we found a free one, as I would expect nothing less from France, um, <laughs> than to find something free. And, of course, we found that little place with a lot of locals were where it was sort of volcanic. It was like a little volcanic swimming hole, really. Uh, it was pretty rough outside, but once we, we were inside, we were able to just lounge around for a couple of hours and cool down, as I recall. Yeah, and that was on the north side of the island, so they had some waves and wind coming in there. 
Right. And we just, I think we, we explored every road on that island just to keep the wind running across our face. We went everywhere yeah. on that island. Yeah. So to a few dead ends. And then we had a big, long hop from there to Sardinia, and we were waiting for a weather window. And we had a little bit of weather in the middle of that, but for the most part, um, I mean, it was basically motoring. I mean, I kept, yeah, I, I remember going through this routine several times during that trip, and that was basically oh, about a 48-hour trip, not quite, but approximately two days to get there. Uh, at least one night on the you know at sea on the boat and um but for the most part it was calm we had a little bit of weather in the middle of that but yeah it, it was it was a typical stuff it, it started blowing i thought great we'll be able to sail the wind came up put a reef in the wind came up some more put another reef in the wind came up some more and then it shifted directions and i took down the sails and and then, uh, and then, as I recall, and you need to correct me on this, didn't we get a little bit of lightning? Yeah, we did. Um, so we left Ustica on the Monday, um, August second, and the, you know, we did. We started the watch system, and I think I was on watch till midnight, and then I woke up at four, and I could see lightning just sort of in the distance, <laughs> brightening the windows at the porthole, so to speak. And so I went up and. It was, we couldn't hear anything, but we could see it off on the horizon. And probably about another hour later, we got hit by some storm cells that came over. Wind went to 25 knots. The boat started healing quite a lot. A couple of things flew out of your bookshelf, but, you know, landed on the, on the cabin sole. But nothing too, too, too drastic. And as I recall, you, we either shortened sail or you pulled out the staysail. I'm not sure which, but... It was okay, you know, the, the, it would come up and it would die, then it would come up. But once these squalls had worked their way through, I mean, there was, there was a lot of lightning, which is the first time I've really seen that at sea. And it was both forked and sheet lightning, which was kind of um, interesting. But I don't think the winds ever got above the low, maybe mid-20s. And that was just very short-lived. And, by, um, and I took a video, um, which I just took a look at a couple of minutes ago, just to refresh my memory. And I see that by um, 7.30 in the morning, it had cleared. So it was just pretty shortly, maybe an hour and a half or two hours. And it wasn't wasn't really stressful. It just added a little bit of interest to the passage because the passage was pretty dull apart from that. (laughs) Yeah, it was dull. Basically, I listened to books on tape for my my watch. And I think my watch was from, I think, midnight down to three or four in the morning and we had we i think we had a three hour on six hour off watch is what we did and so it was nine to midnight midnight to three and three to six and i think you were on that three to six watch weren't you yeah that's right that actually sounds right yeah so but it was fine i mean i same thing i was listening to um podcasts and uh you know, I just sat in the companionway there. You've got a little seat in the companionway where I can look out through the Dodger and see everything. And it was fine. I mean, you know, it, it would have been nice if, if we'd had a little more wind for most of it. Like I said, it, it kicked up for the squall. But usually we were motor sailing, you know, five knots. And as you said, whenever it seemed like, you, were, you know, the wind is a capricious mistress. The moment that you turn the engine off and we thought oh here we go you know half an hour later the engine had to go back on again because we weren't moving so 
That's all right. I mean, it sounds like there was a lot of that this summer for you anyway, in general. Yeah, before you arrived, I just before you arrived with me in Ustica, I had uh, I had to rebuild the manual bilge pump on the boat. I wish you'd been there to help me on this, but uh, it was a real headache. The large bellows on the Edson gallon-a-minute bronze pump had split, and that's the first time it had split since I put the boat in the water. And so I was up till about 10 the night before you arrived rebuilding this with this bilge pump. And the reason I felt like I had to rebuild the bilge pump is I have a, an electric pump too, and it had quit working as well. So I didn't feel safe to go offshore without at least one pump in the Absolutely. bilge. Yeah. But, uh, but that was the only major uh, mechanical issue with you. But when we... But we still had to bleed the engine pretty much every day before we could get the engine started. Do you remember right. that? Once we got the engine yeah. started, it would it would restart. But if it sat overnight, I'd have to bleed the engine to get it started. Right. Yeah, well, I mean, when by the time we got to Alghero on the other side of Sardinia a week later, we had to um, fix that banjo bolt. And I know you mentioned that on the last podcast. Um, but so those were the only, you know, that was the only thing that was particularly time consuming because I, as I recall, that probably took about four hours between the two of us sliding into <laughs> make that work. But that's the, that's the price you pay for, for a life of, of adventure, Yeah, you know? Yep. So we arrived on the coast of, uh, of Sardinia and I can't remember the name of, of the town we went into. Uh, do you recall that? Uh, the bay was actually called Budoni, okay. like uh, almost like Butoni, the spaghetti company, but with a D instead of a T. Um, and the nearest town is called San Teodoro, as in Saint Theodore, which was um, the nearest town was probably about um, five or six nautical miles from where we were. But it was a big, wide bay. It wasn't particularly sheltered, but it didn't matter because it was like glass. I think we came in about 2 a.m. Um, and it was cool, which was which was a, a nice change from what we'd been used to in Ustica. And we actually had a good night's sleep there. I, I do recall getting up about 7 a.m. and shooting something for Instagram. But it was it was nice. I mean, it was a big bay, and I think there were two other boats, one a mile to starboard and one a mile to port, and we didn't see anybody else there. But it was a it was a good night's sleep there, which was what we what we needed after passage because you never really sleep well on passage. So it was fine. Yeah, it was uh, it was fairly open, and like you say, it was is there was no wind. We had a little bit of roll that night, but but it was a very open bay, and we came in in the dark because I think we came in uh, either late at night or early in the morning. Yeah, it was after midnight. I, I, I remember making a note that, that it was either one or two o'clock in the morning. It was definitely after midnight, but it was flat as a pancake and no one else around. And, you know, so we just crept in, dropped the hook. It was good holding, as I recall. I don't remember how deep it was, probably 25 feet, something like that. But it was it was a great anchorage, provided there's no no nothing, no, no wind. I mean, you, you'd be protected from the west side but from the north south or east you weren't protected but it didn't matter it was calm so yeah. no worries yeah and the next oh the one other point i wanted to make about eustica is when we motored in there i wanted to fill up fuel and we went around the harbor and there's no way that you could fill up fuel without jerry cans in eustica uh there was a little um 
gas station on the east side of the uh, of the harbor, but it was too shallow to get any sort of a big boat in there and too difficult to maneuver once you got in there, even if you could get a boat in there. So I was not able to fill up fuel uh, in Ustica. So when we got over to Sardinia, we would basically motored uh, at that point in time probably about 220 miles. So the first uh, agenda item once we got to Sardinia was to uh, to go in and fill up fuel. And right. that's what we did. And we were wondering about COVID protocol as well, but nobody seemed to even care about that when we got there. <laughs> Yeah, no, it, it, well, that was that was the theme of the uh, of the trip, wasn't it? There's there's the government websites and the government's um, instructions and guidance, and then there is the on the ground reality, which very rarely um, is up to speed with what the government wants. So you, well, I think we always did more preparations than necessary, and you want to follow the letter of the law. But um, as we'll talk about when we got to Menorca it can be a little bit of a fiasco sometimes and it certainly was when we got to Spain but yeah. we can talk about a bit but there, there is actually one thing I wanted to say I mean the food any trip to Italy the food is always going to be great um, and the food in Sardinia for my brief time there was lovely and I have to say I had something there that I've never had before I also had it in Ustica it was absolutely sensational and that was a pistachio cream croissants you know they they do them a little differently from the french they put a slight glaze on so that the top is just a little bit crunchier it's not soft but that pistachio cream in the middle is something else and the the sardinian breakfast one of my instagram followers messaged me and said well if you're going to sardinia you have to have the sardinian summer breakfast which is an espresso a pistachio croissant and uh and a lemon granita so <laughs> I think I think I had that a couple of times when I was there, and I have to say it was a great way to start the day. Yeah, those were those were absolutely delicious. We did fill up fuel at Marina di Porto. I'm just zooming in on it right now, and it had a nice, easy fuel dock, so we could pull in easily, side tie, fill up, and uh, we were also able to unload our garbage at the time there, and then we right. con- t- continued up. And then the sail north of there was really, really enjoyable. Why don't you go ahead and describe that? Yeah, yes, it was. I mean, there's it's something of um, of a playground for Italy's wealthy uh, sailor class up there. We saw a lot of really nice boats. We saw a beautiful TP-52 that crossed our path a couple of times. Um, there's a couple of... You know, there's a, some island groups out there that where the islands rise very precipitously out of the out of the sea, and very often they're wreathed in um, in uh, clouds, especially early in the morning. Um, and because of the fact that you get the venturi effect uh, as the wind comes, so you go out of the lee and you know in and out of the lee, the wind would come up and then die a little bit, then come up and then die a little bit. But we had fairly good conditions, I think, probably ranging between 10 and 18 most of the time, mostly on our beam or on our quarter. The sun was shining. The sky was blue. It was, um, you know, and the Lord was in his element, as they say. It was just um, it was just very enjoyable. And it had um, variety. There was variety on the land of things to look at. And there were other boats that we could admire as we went by. And some of them were, you know, sailboats like the TP-52. But there were also a number of um, of luxury yachts, of mega yachts that, you know, probably all home based in Porto Cervo. 
but who were just coming out for the day for lunch and stopping in in coves and places like that. So um, it was nice. It was it was a, it was a nice insight into the local sailing scene there. And our and our goal for the day was uh, golf golf Aranchi, the Aranchi Golf, and the reason we wanted to go there is is they had a hotel that you could get off and do your work at, as I recall. Well, that was the the end result when we got there. The 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 um, English couple who I mentioned earlier, who we tied up next to in Ustica, they were very experienced on sailing in that neighborhood and they said that the Gulf de Aranchi is a beautiful place to stop. It's it's uh, it's very sheltered to the north and to the west and to the east and pretty much to the south too. It's a fairly big bay, but the Gulf of Aranchi right at the north end just sort of the, the landscape sort of hooks round and in this sort of it's like a nice little bolt hole. And because of that it's also a place that's very popular among Italian middle-class holiday makers. So we knew there'd be hotels there. And it was all very, um, I felt a bit like James Bond because we pulled up, um, you know, we dropped anchor and probably, you know, what, 100 meters away from us, there's hundreds of people splashing around just enjoying the beach. And I saw a, a, a hotel, you know, at 90 degrees to me that I found on, a, on, a, on the internet. I booked a room for the next two nights I got into your dinghy uh, with my laptop bag and my um, and my and my dry bag, and we just went straight on up onto the beach. And I, you know, I I I I, uh, I, I walked with sandy feet across the sand into the lobby and said, "Hi, I'm checking in." So it felt it felt very nice. I mean, it wasn't quite like James Bond in the I, I think it's Thunderball, or one of the early Sean Connery movies where he. He, he's wearing a frogman suit and scuba gear and he pulls it off and he blows something up and then he rips, strips down and he's wearing a tuxedo underneath and he walks into the casino. But I felt that's as close as I'll ever get is what I did uh, in the Gulf de Aranchi. So it was, it was kind of a nice thing for me. Yeah, I had actually planned on going into Olbia because I knew we needed to have um, a couple days for you to, to, to do your newspaper thing. But I was glad we didn't go into Olbia because Gulf of Aranchi was just a delight. Just a delight. I enjoyed yeah. it. I think the name of the specific bay we were in is called Cala Moresca. Um, and the town itself is probably no more than a mile and a half long. But a zillion good restaurants, a bunch of hotels, and they range from cheap Airbnbs to little three-star places to a couple of really glamorous places. Um, but I went and had the best meal of my trip I had right there on my own. I had uh, lunch at a place. I think the second day we were there, it was blowing 30 knots. Uh, we weren't planning to leave anyway because I had work to do, but I went out for lunch and I stopped off at this nice place on, on a little promontory over, over, overlooking the, the bay. And, um, you know, I get in there and I can tell it's a swanky place, but I thought, well, since I'm only paying for myself and I'm not paying for France, I'll splash out. <laughs> Um, and I ordered a, a, uh, an Aperol spritz for an appetizer, looked at the menu, and I saw they had the, one of the things that made the region is famous for is the gamberi rossi, which is the brig red shrimp that they don't have, I don't, don't think, anywhere else in the world. And they had a gamberi rossi risotto, um, and they'd actually shaved it carpaccio style, like it was a piece of meat. That's how big the shrimp was. 
and they arranged that on the top and the risotto underneath was perfectly creamy and they took the cooking water which was tinged in pink and they just laced that round the outside of the risotto I had that and a glass of local um, Sardinian white wine and it was oh it was absolutely sensational um, so that was you know and I always like to, to splurge when I can if I'm in a if I'm in a foreign location um, and there's also a really cool bar there that Jack Andrews of this podcast fame mentioned. He saw that I was in uh, where we were going and he said, oh, you have to go to the gin- Ginateria, it was called. It's this little unprepossessing place place on a corner run by an 80-year-old Italian man and his 70-year-old wife. And I've never seen, France, I've never seen so many gin bottles in all my life. Uh, well, not since I cleared out my grandmother's house shortly after she passed away. Um, <laughs> sorry, Grandma. Um, no, it, 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 there was probably 150 different kind of gins there. They had gins from Japan, gins from Korea, gins from Sardinia, a lot of English gins, a lot of American craft gins. So I have a good friend who's a sommelier, uh, not a sommelier. She's a, um, a mixologist over here in Los Angeles. And I took a picture of uh, some of the gin bottles, the more obscure ones, and sent them to her, and she got a kick out of that. But I had a couple of gin and tonics there, and it was all very, very civilized. So it was, um, it's a nice place. I mean, if any of our listeners are planning to be in that part of the world, stopping off at the, the Gulf de Arantia is really a, a must, as far as I'm concerned, because it's, it offers the, the choice and the quality that you can get, but without the prices, it's not Porto Cervo, where it's probably, you know, a hundred dollars for an appetizer and, and, and an aperitif. It, it's not cheap either, but it's still, it's affordable. It's a middle-class resort. So you're not roughing it, but you're not mortgaging the house to pay for a night out either. Yeah. Well, you stay, we, I had uh, two days by myself on the boat, which was nice because I'd been with people for the previous uh, 30 days and uh, you got your work done and, then you join me back on the boat, and we decided to to head north. My goal was to get up to uh, north of Porto Cervo, but the winds were really against us, and we had a a fun day of sailing, beating into the wind, as I recall. Yeah, it was. Um, it wasn't. You know, it's one of those things where you keep you keep hoping the wind's going to come around, clock around. It's going to come into a you know more comfortable position. It really didn't. It came onto our beam a couple of times, and. Uh, you know, the, the landscape as we were, you know, sailing past it meant that sometimes it was a bit more favorable. But I think by about three o'clock in the afternoon, we'd lost patience with it. And we saw a decent um, uh, bay in which we could um, drop anchor. It wasn't particularly sheltered, as I recall. Um, but, um, you have good holding tackle, hold, you know, and we were okay. There was a lot of big expensive boats near us. Um, and a couple of little boats that were coming in that seemed to have like a family of four. There was one in particular that looked like it was about 28, 26 feet long and had a family of four. And they were just sailing, tacking in and out of the mooring field, doing a good job, I have to add. Um, but it, it, it was fine. I mean, I think we were only, we were only anxious and i don't even think we were anxious but we were just alert as you need to be in that situation for till probably about seven o'clock and then as i recall it just the wind just died and we ended up having a pretty peaceful night's sleep on anchor yeah we pulled into a bay just south of porto cervo and i can't remember the name of it oh there it is um 
because basically that was about the only bay with any protection that, uh, yeah, Porto Paglia, P-A-G-L-I-A, yeah. And right. there were a lot of boats in there. There were a lot of boats anchored in there. And it was, it was uh, the, the wind was coming from the north, and we had a protection uh, the, of the island, so it's sort of a bite that goes back in there, and we were protected from the north. And, yeah, it was okay, but it was it was really pretty crowded. And the anchorage, as I recall, was deeper than I like to anchor in. I think it was probably around 65 or 70 feet deep. And so I had to right. let out a lot of anchor chain uh, to grab on. We did not We did not drag. We held once we got our anchor down. But I was always worried about dragging at night. Well, yes. I mean, and you, you never know the skill or experience level of the people around you, even if you're confident that you're, you know, as confident as you can be, that you're going to hold, uh, you know, with no problem. You never know about the guy off, uh, you know, your port bow or your starboard bow behind you. And there were a couple of people who really didn't seem to know what they were doing. We did see that a couple of people who seemed to be dropping anchor and they were too close to us. Then they pulled up and then they moved a little bit Then they tried again. And I think a couple of people tried and gave up and headed back somewhere else. So I think that as much as your own concern about your own equipment is something that it's natural to think about. So if it had been, if those conditions had persisted into the evening and overnight, I think that, you know, one of us would have probably had to have been on watch but as it happened, it, it died away, and it was actually fine. After about 7 p.m., you'd never know that the conditions what they had been what they were three hours earlier. Yeah. Well, the next day, we did a flyby of the uh, the gin palaces in Porto Cervo. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, it's, uh, it's a <laughs> nice, nice place if you can afford it. Yes. If you have to ask how much, you can't afford it. Um it's it's an interesting looking place with interesting looking boats, but um, you know I've been to Monte Carlo and uh, Porto Cervo is just Monte Carlo with an Italian accent and without the Grand Prix. Uh, to my way of thinking, it's okay. It's nice to see how the other half lives, but I wouldn't have wanted to stick around for any longer than we did. Yeah, we just did a flyby. We basically went in, drove around, looked at the boats, the yachts, and then then headed out. And then we had actually a very very long. Uh, hall after that we went all the way around the north of uh, sardinia um through the um, magdala islands the Mag- madalena islands and right all the way around the north end and there was lots and lots of traffic so much traffic when when going around there near palau and uh madalena island and then we uh, then we basically just went around the north end of the island. And we, I think we actually did have a decent sail for a few hours on our way to uh, to the east side of – or to yeah. the west side. Yeah. I mean, the Straits of Bonifacio, the, um, the wind really kicked up. Again, you've got a Venturi effect there going. So we had some pretty brisk downwind work as far as I recall. I mean, when I say work, you know, what we're basically doing is watching – your wind vane doing the steering. But I remember that it was a little bit of a confused sea state. We had following seas, um, consistently 20 knots, rising a little bit above that sometimes, a little bit below that, but mainly around 20 knots. But the sun was shining, it was warm. And, you know, as you know, 20 knots downwind is a completely different beast from 20 knots upwind. It was pretty relaxing and it was fun, you know, and, and, and your boat, Sea Dream, just tracks so well. 
she's just uh, she just seems to be made for for when the wind pipes up so it was fun um you know and it was certainly certainly better than motoring which is what we'd had at the start yeah that was a long day we covered a lot of a lot of territory on that day and we went all the way over to the uh the northeast islands of of sicily what was forini fornelli 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 island and anchored just uh to the south end of Fornelli Island on the passage to get out to the east side. And uh, it was dead calm when we came in there and dropped our anchor. And it was getting getting fairly late at night as well, as I recall. And uh, Yeah, it was. It was fairly late. It was, it was very sheltered. And that, basically, there's like a, this is the northwest tip of Sardinia that we're talking about. So there's this promontory that comes out. And then there's a little gap with a couple more islands, but basically that sort of sticks up like an arm on the left-hand side of the of the island. So if you're tucked in behind that, you're pretty much sheltered. Um, and we were it was we were nicely sheltered. So that was that that was great. And the the interesting thing was that in the morning we were either I think we were moving a boat or something. Someone went by in a big rib you know big inflatable boat for six or eight people and they yelled at us that we'd actually dropped anchor in a marine reserve um although it wasn't marked anywhere it wasn't marked on either the charts or on um or on navionics and there were certainly no signs on the buoys or a couple of big buoys but not the ones that indicate that and we were outside of the buoys anyway so it was, and there were a couple of other boats that were probably 100 meters away from us who apparently were not in the marine reserve so i'm not really quite sure where it began and where it ended but the bottom line is it was beautifully quiet and it was a good night's rest and to wake up with that land you know that view in the morning have a dip in the in the in the ocean before a morning coffee it was yeah it was lovely yeah yeah, they came by and told us we were in a reserve and to move, and that was fine. We were moving anyway, so it didn't make any difference to me or you. So, yeah, and from there, we actually had a decent sail. We had to – getting out through that pass was was tight navigating, so we had to be careful with our navigation uh, getting through the pass between Fornelli and Piana Island. And then once we were out there, then it was a nice, as I recall, pretty much a downwind run. All the way to Alguero uh, until we turned the corner was, to head up to Alguero. Yeah, it was a downwind run, mostly on the quarter, which was nice. Um, you know, again, Vanity did the uh, vast majority of the steering, which was nice. But it was warm, the sun was shining, there was plenty of breeze, and um, less boats around on that side. Once we started to come down on that side, we saw much less traffic. Um, and visually, it was very nice, too. A lot of interesting cliff formations and, um, you know, sweeping hilltops and that kind of thing. So it was, um, it was, yeah, it was, it was a nice sail. Yeah. We pulled into Alguero, and Alguero was a, a, a big, packed harbor. And I needed to fill up fuel because, again, I needed, uh, this is, would, would motored quite a ways. So we, I pulled in. My goal was to fill up at the fuel dock. But when we were pulling in, uh, marineros were trying to help us tie up. Uh, and <laughs> we ended up getting, after filling up fuel, we ended up getting a free spot in the marina. Do, yeah, do you well, recall that? Yeah, yeah, no, I do. I mean, it's funny. I always know that you, you, you come from a position that you think someone's trying to make you pay for something that you don't want to pay for. So the guy was, was, was friendly enough, and you kind of, 
you kind of like ignore. Uh, I don't. You kind of gave him the bums rush, which is fine. That's what I would have done too. And then you said, "Oh, maybe we can get him for free." So you went, "Here, what's this guy? Where we can go in for free, well, or whatever it was." And I think once he realised that we weren't paying customers, I can't complain. He was super nice. Him and his buddy, they they helped us get in because it was a little bit tight there. And it was, I mean, in many ways, that spot was ideal because it was on the harbour, on the on the on the you know the, the city wall, you know, and the harbour wall there. Didn't cost us anything. We had free water and we had free power. And it was 75 meters from the it was under the rampart, 75 meters from the entrance to the old town. So the location was absolutely fantastic, and it was and it didn't cost us anything. So. That to me was ideal, and I'm sure it was ideal for you too. It was perfect. It was great, yeah. and and that turned out to be a delightful town. I I had uh, driven by Algaro before, but I had never actually been into the city, and uh, it was a fun, fun little village. It was yeah. Well, I guess it had huge strategic importance because it's one of the most important towns on the on the west side of Sardinia. So it was fortified with a wall and with cannons, you know, um, and inside it's, you know, narrow streets and cobblestones and lots of charming little restaurants and stores, some of which are selling, you know, what you always refer to as tourist trinket trash. But the place certainly had a charm as far as I was concerned. I liked it there. And I, you know, and if I could have stayed a week and eaten my way through the town, I would have been very happy because it had the sort of stuff that you just can't get out here. And it was just it was very reasonably priced. Um, and you know, and it, it was, it was, um, it was great. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I even enjoyed the fact that when we, when we got back to the boat the first night, there was, um, a, one of the, you know, the local youth, three or four of them had gathered together and they put on a show and handed the hat around and they did break dancing to music and acrobatics or whatever. And that was taking place about, about 30 feet from our cockpit while we were watching. So we got the benefit of a free show, which was nice. Um, and then the next day, as I recall, um, you were so tired of seafood, you tasked me with the vital job of finding a restaurant where you could have something that didn't come from the sea. So I found us a nice restaurant where I think you had a rabbit stew. And um, as I remember, the food was the food was excellent. I mean, the food excellent everywhere we went but that was especially good as I recall. yeah that was a great restaurant i really enjoyed that rabbits too and and it was so much that i even shared it with you it was right. a lot of food so that, <laughs> that was a big rabbit i guess but yeah yeah well what my my wife said to me about five years ago she said neil she said you don't really have a superpower she said but if you do it's that you seem to be able to find good restaurants no matter where you are in the world so i'm happy that i didn't disappoint there and it was um yeah it was great yeah, we had we were there two or three days waiting for a weather window to head on over to Menorca, and that was going to be the longest uh, trip of the of the summer. That was 191 nautical miles, that hop from Sardinia to uh, Mahon, Menorca. And, right. Uh, so we were waiting for a weather window, but but when he finally got a weather window, and as I recall, there's a couple more maintenance items we did on the boat, but the big one was when. When we got ready to leave, I needed to bleed the engine to get it started. And when I turned the uh, bleeder bolt on the uh, on the banjo bolt, there's one banjo bolt that has a little bolt built into it or screwed into it. And I'd been opening and closing and opening and closing that bleeder bolt all summer long. And this time I opened it and it broke and I couldn't 
I couldn't close it again. And so uh, the engine started, but it just started running diesel fuel out this this uh, bolt hole that had broken off. And we right. said, oh, dear. Uh, I thought, we're not going anywhere till we get this fixed. And I thought, geez, where am I going to get a part? And it just so happened that I happened to have that that particular banjo bolt as a spare in my uh, in my spares, and it was one of the first things I pulled out. Usually, I tear the boat apart before I find anything, but that came. Uh, we found it fairly quickly, and then you'd think it'd just be easily pulling out the old banjo bolt and throwing in the new one. But this was a steel line that goes from the um, the fuel filter on the engine, and this is a Yanmar three GM thirty F engine. There's a steel fuel line that goes from the uh, from the fuel filter, the outs, the outlet of the fuel filter, the uh, that's mounted on the engine, to the uh, to the to the injector pump, and when you took out this banjo bolt, it just kinked enough that you could not get the other one to thread going in there by hand. We couldn't. We we literally spent two three hours trying to get this to fit, and we know it had to go in, and finally. We could not get it in until you suggested, say, maybe you got to undo the other side of it. And when we did that, then we could loosely uh, insert both banjo bolts because there's a banjo bolt on the other side of this line as well. And then get them both started and then tighten them up. So that was a good suggestion. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm, you know... I'm in many ways one of the least mechanical people that you'll ever find. So I'm glad that I was able to contribute something, a little brain power. And it was nice when we when we finally figured it out because there's hot, sweaty, nasty work sliding in there. I mean, it was, you know, in not great conditions, but we had to get it done and we did. So that felt good. And it it's funny, isn't it, how, how you expected the hard part would be finding the banjo boat, not actually sticking it where it's supposed to be. And that finding it was the easy thing. But you do have a, um, you have a cavernous selection of, um, of spares on the boat, and uh, it was good that you did. Yeah. One of the things that we experienced, when, so when I, when I put my boat in the water, I specifically went to, um, to Croatia for one night. Uh, to clear into Croatia and clear out of Croatia and then go clear into Italy because when I'd been to Italy before, I actually hadn't cleared in. I'd just cleared into um, oh, the next the next town, the next, what's this? Oh, what is it? Slovenia. I cleared into Slovenia and then just went straight over to Italy and never bothered clearing in at Italy. And so I was worried about the clear in, clear out process. Uh, so I wanted to have a clear a clearance out of Italy when I left Italy. So when we were in Alghero, I said, okay, let's go clear out because we're now leaving Italy and going to Spain. We'd already filled out the the stuff online for entering Spain and get, and gone through all the nonsense of what we had to do once we got to Spain. And so I thought, okay, now I need to go get a clear out, clear out document in Alghero. So we spent about a couple hours looking for a port uh, the harbor master and the uh, yeah. immigration police, and basically they just said, "Okay, see you later, goodbye." Do you recall yeah. that? We couldn't. Yeah, we couldn't even get into. First of all, we couldn't find the building. And when we did find the building, we uh, they would only talk to us in the intercom. And then a guy opened the window above and called down to us. And he came down in his mask 
and he just took a, you know, you had your, your folder full of stuff and he just took a very cursory glance, went, okay, fine, bye. And it's, you know, it's very much as it felt as though we were just an inconvenience, an inconvenience for them to have to do their job and which is fine. I'm happy for them to, to just let us go quickly, but you just sort of wish there'd been a bit more coordination. <laughs> it would rather the window and said, the hell with you, leave my island and don't ever darken my door again. <laughs> yeah, but, but, you know, and then I thought, okay, well, when I got to Spain, I thought, well, now I'm going to have a problem clearing into Spain. Let's, well, well, let's first talk about our trip from Algero. We left in the evening, and mm-hmm. basically we motored all night long, all day the next day, and uh, all night that night, and all day the next day, and all night. That, it was 191 nautical miles. That was a long haul. Uh, That's right. And then we got into, and there was really nothing eventful about this whole trip. There was no, as I recall, there were no, it was just motoring. Do you recall anything different than that? Yeah, no, you're right. We, um, According to my uh, notes here, we left, um, we left Algero uh, in the afternoon of Monday, the 9th of August, and we pulled in on August the 11th, um, uh, early in the morning to my home, and it was a very um, uneventful, what, about 36-hour passage, maybe a little bit more than that. Um, it's about what five, five and a half knots average, something like that. Mm-hmm. And it was, yeah, it, there wasn't very much wind. Uh, I think a couple of times we managed to get both sails up and fill filling, and that lasted for an hour and a half or two hours if we were lucky, and then we motored. Um, so there really wasn't anything. Um, at all eventful about it. The only eventful aspect of it, I mean, you know, and then we we, did, we didn't go into the the main inlet of Port Mahone. We went to the little um, harbour that's just next to it. The nat- not the nature harbour, as they say in Sweden, but it's a little anchorage basically, isn't it? it? It goes in about half a mile, and there were probably what a couple of dozen boats all sort of dropped anchor there, cheek by jowl, because it's it's beautifully sheltered. And you don't have to pay, and then you can clear in the next day. At least that was our that was our rationale. Yeah. What I found out later on, Neil, is that is the only free anchorage in the whole port. Is that spot right there? So, <laughs> and I talked about this in the last episode, but uh, that was where the the port the port police kept trying to tell me to go anchor, go anchor there, and I'd go there, and it was so jam packed that, that was the only place boats could anchor. And uh, but we right. actually anchored outside of the port, right next to the uh, uh, a seawall, an ancient seawall. And because we right. just came in at in the middle of the night and it was still dark, we just dropped our anchor when we we felt it was safe and didn't worry about it. But the next, well, it, it was sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. So it was very exciting for me because of the fact that one of the fate, my fate, probably my favorite book series that I've ever read is the Aubrey Maturin series that the movie uh, Master and Commander was based on. It's a 21 book series by uh, Patrick O'Brien. Um, and at the beginning of the series, the two central protagonists, Aubrey and Maturin, meet in Menorca. And of course, Menorca uh, in Mahone. And of course, Mahone was such an important place for the British Navy because it's the best natural harbor in the Mediterranean, which is why when the Brits found it, they said, well, we're going to take up a, a lease for 100 years and stay here. So and you can still feel the British influence. But there's a lot of descriptions in um, the Master and Commander series about 
the entrance to um, Port Mahone, the way it looks, the turrets uh, of the guard towers that are there, um, and um, you know the Africa in the distance, and it's it's just really very evocatively written. So it was actually very exciting for me to go there. Um, but it was also the inadvertently the 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 sort of the scene of the funniest or most typical adventure that we had the whole time, and that was you know the clearing in of customs because, as we alluded to earlier, you when you go to Spain, at least the rule as it was when we were there in August, there's two different uh, portals on the Spanish government website. One if you arrive by plane, one if you arrive by sea. If you arrive by sea, you have to fill it out no more than 48 hours before your arrival. And since we were arriving on a sailboat and things can happen, engines can break down and you can be becalmed, that in itself meant that it was added a little uncertainty. But of course, so when we pulled in the night before, and I've got, I think, a, you know, we've still got another um, 24 hours to check in. I think this is great, no worries. And then, of course, we go there the next day and... Um, we we can't find the the customs office. It's not mentioned on Google Maps. We ask boats going past us. No one knows where it is. We can't get um, a transient berth at any of the marinas, and they won't even answer our questions about where the customs office is either. And now, when we finally found it, you know, it's a, there's a big wall with no one tied up, and we tied up, and they said, "Oh no, you can't tie up here." because there's a ship coming in a minute, a passenger ferry. And so we moved a little bit and then a policeman came out and they said, you can't tie up here either. And I said, well, well, that's fine. We don't need to tie up here, but where is the customs office? And he pointed and it was literally 50 meters away. And I thought to myself, you know, much as I love the Spanish in many ways, only in Spain would you have a customs office, which you're required to check in on when you are arriving by a sailboat and there is, but there's no parking, you know, so to speak. It was just... It was just so frustrating. And of course, so we, we motored out into the middle of the harbor again, dropped anchor. I said, my, you know, I got back into the, into the dinghy with all my stuff. And of course, then there's no dinghy dock either for a mile. So we have to, and it's 102 degrees. So then we, we tie up, we find a dinghy dock, we trudge. And of course, I'd, I'd smash my hand on your, um, on your, uh, on one of your hatches. So my hand is throbbing and I'm feeling pretty upset and just teed off at life in general. And of course, we get to the office and it's closed. It's just, <laughs> this is just classic uh, Spanish organization, I'm afraid. You know, they require you to jump all through these hoops. And of course, if we'd gone back the next day, in theory, they could have told us to sail back to Italy because we hadn't arrived in the 40 hour window. So it was just, um, uh, you know, I could look back and laugh now, but at the time it was pretty frustrating. Yeah, we did refuel there, though. I mean, that was one of the top priorities. We were able to refuel in the on the harbor. We could actually pull in and refuel before we did that. So basically, at that point in time, I said, Neil, go on your way. Go get to your hotel room, and 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 uh, I'll deal with this. And I come to find out that I finally came back the next day when the uh, the port police was open. They said, "You don't need to do anything. You don't go down here. Go talk to another person. Went somebody somewhere else. I said, you don't need to do anything." So. Whatever the requirements are, um, and I, well, I talked to enough officials that uh, what they tell you on the internet and what they tell you in reality are two totally different things. Yeah. And, it's just uh, it's just unbelievable. It really is. Um, you know, and from from my perspective, you know, we said our goodbyes, and I had a hotel room. You know, it, the, Mahone is a is a 
steep harbour town where, you know, the life begins down at the port. But most of the hotels are sort of a, a brisk walk up the hill. And so I stopped in at that little um, that little bar or restaurant where we said our goodbyes. And after you left, I said to the guy who owned the place, you know, hey, how can I get a taxi? Can you call me a taxi? And he said, no. He said, you can only do it by app on the island. I guess they've got some sort of monopoly. So I tried to download the app, but the app is not available if you're on the North American version of iTunes. It's only available on the European version, which I don't have. So I couldn't get the app. So I had to walk uphill in 100-degree temperatures, with, lugging with all my... all your bags. Yeah, at least I helped you with bags. your bags to the bar, you at know, least. And yeah. I'm not a young man in my 20s, and I'm thinking to myself, you know, I can feel my heart beating in my ears... And I'm just thinking to myself, please, Lord, don't let me expire here because this would be a pretty um, dismal way to go. You know, lugging my my gear uphill at, uh, at noon in 100 degree temperatures. I was, you know, I just took my time and flitted from the shadows to the shadows as best as I could. But when I got to the hotel, it was great. Um, they had some very civilized things in the in the lobby, like complimentary gazpacho, which is a chilled Spanish tomato soup, which I'm very fond of. And I actually had three fantastic days there. Mahone is a wonderful town. The restaurants are great. The history is good. And it was it was it was really nice to spend three days there before I before I flew to continue with my travels. Well, Neil, thanks for your recollections of the trip. We've gone about an hour now, and that's about perfect. So uh, anything else you want to add before we finish the interview yeah just to say that i was at the uh, the boat show in annapolis a couple of weeks ago i've been visiting my daughter in dc and uh, i saw a couple of other people who are known to this uh, this our listeners um i saw andy and his wife mia from the 59 north podcast and i also saw jeffrey wettig first time i've met him in person from the shooting the breeze podcast so that was kind of nice uh, as well as a few other people that i know from the the internet world so <laughs> it was terrifically fun and i ended up buying one of their little signaling cannons that they're selling the i, the, I forget the name of the company that andy started but um i'm going to have a little signaling cannon cannon for my boat in sweden so i'm going to uh, hopefully take that and uh, and christen it next summer when i get back to uh, scandinavia well perhaps i'll join you again next summer but nonetheless we're going to keep in touch between now and then awesome thanks a lot neil all right. Take care of yourself. Thanks. The website for Sailing in the Mediterranean and Beyond is www.medsailor.com. Again, medsailor.com. Life is short. In the end, all that really matters is the memories you make. So make a few. Go sailing. Joel, you want to know something? What? Every now and then, say what the f***. What the f*** gives you freedom? Freedom brings opportunity. Opportunity makes your future. If you can't say it, you can't do it. <laughs>